Expedition 44 here with Matt and Ryan. Welcome back to our show. Most of our listeners, watchers know that we have been in a little bit of a break. We've been off for about two to three months here. Some of you follow us closely and know what we've been up to, but those of you who don't, a little congratulations are in order. And we're going to spend a little more time on this, but Matt just graduated from Covenant Theological Seminary with a THD this is, if you don't know what that is, this is about the highest level of degree you can get, just tons and tons of research. Um, Matt, how many pages did you write, sources? Give give us 10 seconds here. Uh, it was 344 pages with the bibliography. I had like about close to 400 sources, I think, in my bibliography, over 800 footnotes. It was, yeah, it was, it was a it was a thing. It was a project. So. Well, Matt, congratulations. We'll get Thanks. a little bit more to that later, but uh, that's what we've been doing. Matt's been finishing his dissertation, doing a huge defense of the dissertation. He finally got through everything and uh, looks like we're on to looking for uh, figuring out which way to publish it and all kinds of other stuff. So we're excited about that, but we're even more excited today to be back with you and have a very special guest with us. We have Carmen Imes, and I'm gonna let Matt introduce her in a second. She's been on our show once before with her first book. I can't believe it's been two years here. Matt, give us a little bit more. Yeah, Dr. Imes was with us, uh, I think it was in January of 2021, shortly after the January 6th. But Dr. Imes was, when we were interviewing her on her book, um, bearing God's name, uh, was in Canada teaching, and now she's at Biola. And if you don't know of Dr. Imes, you need to go check her out. She does a, a podcast video, a video podcast on YouTube called the Torah Tuesday. Um, she's also a frequent speaker at churches, conferences, retreats, um, has been teaching, like I said, at Biola, um, grew up as a missionary in the Philippines, um, and yeah, it has plenty of great books and content out there. We're so excited to have you back on, Dr. Imes. Um, thanks for joining us again. Welcome. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, it's good to be back with you guys. And I just want to say a little bit about our, our last one. Um, we just thoroughly, Matt and I both thoroughly enjoyed your first book. We, we read it multiple times. It's one that I mm. sort of keep on the shelf and, you know, have some bookmarks in and keep going through. I'm not one to preach very often, but I think right after I read that, I integrated a huge majority of it into a sermon because I felt like mm. the content was so good that it needed to be shared with the world. And I'm an mm. Old Testament person. So I, of course, loved a lot of the things that you did with that and uh, also shared the book with so many people that went on to read it that way. And you know, had many of them come back and say, just thank you for introducing mm -hmm. them to your work. And also we use it at Covenant Theological Seminary with our students quite regularly. Uh, yeah, Matt, I don't know. One of our core which, classes. Yeah, one of our core one, classes. Yeah, I don't remember which classes. one, but just about every student at our seminary has to read it as part of their, uh, <laughs> as part of their introduction. So thank you again That's for great. the investment that you've made there. It's a great, great work. Thanks for spreading the word. I, I love hearing about pastors who preach on it, classrooms who use it, not because I'm trying to get rich on it, but because I'm just so convinced that every person, every believer needs to understand their identity and vocation as somebody who represents God by bearing his name. Yeah, it's so core to discipleship. And you have a brand mm -hmm. new book out. 
being yes. God's image. Yeah, we're we're really excited. Uh, we got <laughs> all three of us. <laughs> all right, so we're we're really excited about this book. I absolutely loved it. The subtitle of it is "Why Creation Still Matters," and I think mm-hmm. that that is so important for um for the call to discipleship for believers. Mm-hmm. So first, let's let's get into this. How has the image of God really been like defined throughout history, and how do you explain what it means to be God's image? Mm-hmm. Well, it would have been impossible for me to read all the books that are out there on the image of God. There are so many. And so maybe the first thing people are wondering is, really, do we need another book on the image of God? (laughs) And um, part of what I've noticed is that there are some widespread and deeply rooted misconceptions about the image of God that get repeated over and over again in sermons, in popular conversations, and in other books. And I, I had observed that there was some good new work being done by evangelical scholars who are helping us take a closer look at what does Genesis actually say? Let's be good exegetes before we start theologizing and um, trying to, to work this out in practice. And those, those evangelical scholars who were doing such good work on it were doing that in their dissertations, which the average person is never going to read. And so just like bearing God's name was a popularization of the ideas that I, that I discovered doing my dissertation research. I felt like we needed another book that would take this other dissertation research by other scholars and make it more accessible. So one of the, one of the really deep seated ideas about the image of God that I think it doesn't get it quite right is tying the Imago Dei or the image of God to human capacities or functions that the image of God is some kind of skill we possess or capacity for doing something that sets us apart from animals. And while it's true that humans are better than animals in many ways, that we have um, we have superior capacities in all sorts of areas, I don't believe that that's what the Bible is presenting the image of God as, that the image of God isn't defined in connection with those capacities. So I wanted to do a deeper dive to see what is it tied to if it's not capacities. And the reason why I felt like uh, we, we need to decouple it or unhitch it from capacities is because as soon as you say the image of God is uh, human intellect or rationality or relationality or moral reasoning, then you end up with a situation in which humans are not all on a, a level playing field. Some humans are more intellectually rigorous than others. Some are are born with serious uh, disabilities that prevent them from performing at the same level as other humans. And I think it's really important for us to ground the Imago Dei in our human identity rather than in something that we do or a capacity we possess so that we don't end up with a sliding scale of some humans who are more valuable or or have a greater worth than others. That's good. So Matt and I are also very much into exegesis. In fact, that's kind of what our videos have known for is, Mm -hmm. you know, we do some interviews like this, but normally we're tearing into a text and, you know, our kind of motto is we don't leave one rock overturned, Mm -hmm. anything that's Mm -hmm. said or brought up or thought of, of the text. We want to go back and say, is, is there a place for that? And a lot of that gets into hermeneutics and textures of interpretation and things like that. And so, you know, we're always looking at a text and saying, 
what would what would a certain text have have been intended by the author that wrote it to their mm-hmm. ancient Near East context, civilization, things like that. Can you yeah. just kind of talk about how the image might connected to Yahweh's image in an A&E culture setting? Yeah. Yeah. I really think in this case that the ancient Near Eastern context is what illuminates the, the true meaning of the Imago Dei. And I don't actually know why we say Imago Dei. I'm like just adopting this practice of using Latin, um, not to make anybody feel dumb. That's just how people say it. So image of God, um, the, the image of God is something that for a long time, as I said, was attached to capacities or to these sort of broader theological ideas. And that was mainly happening in generations where scholars did not have access to the ancient Near East. Things that we know now were at that time buried under the sands of time. And we didn't have texts that had been carefully studied. We didn't have objects. And so now we're actually in a better position than we were 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago. We're in a better position now to understand the historical and cultural context of the Bible because it's been recovered to a, to a large degree. So it's an exciting time to do biblical scholarship. So the in the ancient Near Eastern context, you would have um, obviously every culture would have a deity that they worshipped or multiple deities that they worshipped, and they would build temples in honor of those deities, and they would they would install in the most holy place a statue of their god, and that statue they understood was not the god himself or herself, but represented the presence of the god was a kind of authorized representative of the god. And what's really interesting is that when the Bible talks about humans as the image of God, that word image in Hebrew is tselem, which is the same word used to describe these temple statues or idols of other nations. So God makes the world in effect as a cosmic temple. This is the the place where he's going to take up residence and reign over and reign through But he doesn't want there to be a statue of himself, a stone statue, because he creates humans as his selim. We are the physical embodiment of the presence of God. We represent the presence of God. To say that we're the image of God does not mean we're God. It doesn't mean we're divine in some way, but rather that we are connected with the deity and we're his authorized representatives to to, um to say to the rest of the created world, to all the animals and and the rest of the created world, that Yahweh is the true God and that he deserves all of our worship. So this is why I think it's problematic to attach, um, to tie the image of God to a certain capacity or something immaterial about us. Because in the ancient Near Eastern context, uh, an an image is very concrete. It's a three-dimensional representation of a deity. And so there's a lot to unpack there, but what does it mean for us to be a three-dimensional representative of Yahweh? And that, that is where I think we need to linger in, instead of thinking um, abstractly, what are all the things that make us different from animals? Okay, then we're going to take all that content and pour it into the Imago Dei or the image of God. I don't think 
the Bible supports that kind of that way of reading it. I think we need to be more rigorous about what does this word actually mean in Hebrew and in its ancient Near Eastern context, and we have a clear answer. Yeah, that's great. The um, so there are some scholars that kind of bank primarily on like that representative uh, vocational aspect of it, and even like when they talk about the fall, like Genesis three, and that talk about the image even being lost or somewhat broken. Mm, and mm. I know you push back against that in one of the I chapters do. in your in your book. And you kind of make this distinction between image and glory, which yeah. I really loved. Um, can you talk about that a little bit and and really how like Jesus ties that all together? Yeah, you bet. So it is very common to say that the image has been distorted or diminished or even lost at the fall in Genesis 3. The interesting thing is that there's very little to no exegetical warrant for that. If you look in Genesis 3, it doesn't say anything about the loss of the image. Um, usually people who are arguing that the image has been lost are basing it on Genesis 5, where it says that um, Adam gives birth or bears a son named Seth, and Seth is in his image or in his likeness. It uses the same language for the father-son relationship as it does for uh, Yahweh's relationship with humanity. And so people will conclude from that, and it just happened to me on a radio interview uh, with a live in, live call in uh, just a couple of days ago where the caller was like, but look, in Genesis 5, it says that, that Seth is Adam's image instead of being God's image, and they're seeing that as a contrast. The reason why I don't think that works is because if we fast forward to Genesis 9, after the flood, God makes very clear that murder is prohibited. You cannot shed the blood of other humans because humankind is the image of God. And mm -hmm. so if the image had been lost or destroyed at the fall, we certainly still don't have it at the flood. And I mean, if, if anything, some, someone could say, oh, well, most humans lose the image but the, the line that's chosen by God doesn't, they still have the image. Well, that's the whole problem in Genesis five. It's Seth, which, who's the godly descendant of Adam and Eve, who is said to be in Adam's image. So I don't think that argument works. Yeah. It's clear to me in Genesis nine, that all humans are still the image of God. And so I don't think it works to say that we've lost it. We have obviously lost something. Something bad happens in Genesis 3 that's absolutely devastating. What I want to say is that the Imago Dei is our human identity, and we do not lose our identity in the fall. What we lose is a sense of closeness with God. There's a breach in our relationship with God in which there's now brokenness, there's suspicion or hiding or... Um, some kind of tension between God and humans and between humans and other humans. There, we see that tension between Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. And then between humans and the ground, uh, we see that in, as well in Genesis 3. There, it's going to be thorns and thistles and sweat and pain and um, things that, that used to be uh, a joyful expression of human labor will become really onerous. And so I would say the, the best way I've found to describe what was actually lost is that the glory was lost. Mm -hmm. So Adam and Eve are still the image of God, but they no longer reflect because they haven't been living in alignment. They made choices that are out of alignment with their true identity. And so the glory they're meant to have, that that is the honor of 
of representing God and showing his character, showing his presence in an uh, in an undistorted way, that's been lost. Now we distort things. That's Sin. really good. You know, you'll get a kick out of this. My, uh, we homeschool at my family. I've got four boys and they're, yeah. they're all pretty young, but the oldest is going to be a senior. And the two older ones, I often have read books that I'm reading, you know, they yeah. see dad reading them. And I, you know, I, I do that all the time. And so one of them has been reading your latest book and he yeah. got to that thing. And he's like, what do you mean lost? What does she mean by the image of God? You know, sometimes people think it's lost. He being yeah. a kid, you know, sometimes you just go back to simplistic, the way children think, yep. you know, and, and, it, and he couldn't fathom how somebody could think that the image of God could just be lost. It, it gave yeah. me a very fresh perspective because I actually go that way. I think most people feel like the image of God is lost almost. Mm -hmm. And it's funny where there's a new Indiana Jones coming out. I don't know if you follow oh. that stuff. And so we've been watching them kind of reset watching them. And like, uh, they were talking about that and there's a, oh, I'm trying to remember exactly where it's at. It's like Job 28, 17. There's a word for crystal. That's a hopex legomenum. It's a mm -hmm. I think, and just means you know, this crystal thing and nobody really knows what it was. And, and so then that came up that, you know, that we're connecting all these different waving things and going, so, so, you know, do we open this box that says Zecho Keith on it and find out that it's something that changes the context of the Bible. And then that opened a Dead Sea Scrolls conversation and hmm. everything else, you know, but the, the, the circular part of it came back of saying like, hmm. Most of this stuff, especially something that God would have found so important, doesn't get lost. You know, no. a reference to crystal that we don't know what yeah. it is, that's pretty minor in the Bible, you know, but yeah. the image of God, like those aren't things that I, you might say God would let get lost, so to speak. Yeah. It, there's another, there's another view out there and it's, I, I want to talk about this carefully because scholars that I respect a lot hold this view. Yeah. I don't think they're just crazy people, right? Who are not being careful. Um, but there's a view out there that only Jesus is actually the image of God, mm -hmm. that the rest of us aren't. We're, we're made in the image of God, right. which is we're kind of, we kind of approximate or we're trying to approximate Jesus status, but we, we aren't there yet. Right. We're on this kind of journey. And I think that is also misguided because the, when the New Testament says that Jesus is the image of God, the exact representation of his being, I don't think Jesus is the image of God because Jesus is God. Jesus is God, to be clear. I believe yeah. Jesus is God. <laughs> Just so we're going to get any hate mail. Um, Glad Jesus, we settled that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Jesus is fully God and fully man. But it's it's not because of his deity that he's the image of God. God does... God can't be his own image. God, God is God is God, right? Yeah. An image is a is is by definition not God, but representing God. And so it's by virtue of being human that Jesus can be called the image of God. And so when the New Testament calls Jesus the image of God and then says that we're conformed to his likeness, what it's saying is that Jesus is human, therefore he's the image of God. And watch, he is going to show the rest of us what it's supposed to look like for us to be the image of God. He's got all of the glory that we were meant to have, 
because he's living fully in alignment with that identity. Instead of living by a lie and worshiping the wrong things, he's actually going to show us how to live into our vocation. That's a consequence of being the image of God. So yes, we, we have something we need to gain. And we can be conformed to Christ, and then the glory will be restored. But it's not as though we need to be made into the image of God. We already are. Yeah. That's how I see it. It's good. One of the other things I liked about where you went, and this is another thing that even with my kids has opened up a lot of conversations, is how the image of God connects to so many different things. Hmm. Well, I would say theology, but I mean, my kids would just tell you in the Christian's life. I mean, yeah. that, you know, it really kind of points we kind of say every matt and i always use the line everything points to jesus but you could you could really use that about the image too and yeah. so we deal a lot with like people's thoughts of disembodied heavens you know mm -hmm. the heaven is in between recreated heavens and earth the final final heaven things like that talk a little bit about the connection you made some great references mm. to the image of god and the way think people think about heaven mm. just just share that a little bit yeah, yeah, I think I, I think that um, so often in our world today, in evangelical circles, we talk about going to heaven when we die, yeah. and we in, envision it to be a kind of floating around on the clouds. Yeah, pie in the sky thinking. I'm pie in the sky. Yeah. Yep. And we also think of this earth as something that's going to burn. And so of, of all those who were on the launch team who got to read the book early, that was one of the questions that one of the pieces of pushback I got most is, but what about second Peter? It says, it says it's going to burn. And, and so we went back to that passage and I tried to show it does not say the whole world will burn and will be destroyed. It says the elements will be destroyed. So then we have to say, okay, what, what is the Greek word behind that? You know, word elements in English, which is stoicheia. What, what does the stoicheia refer to? And and I, I would say that's the the elemental building blocks of a, of an empire set up against God. Those are the things that are going to pass away in the fire. And, and so I think of the fire in the New Testament as a refining fire, not a destructive fire. It destroys only those things that don't belong in the new creation. And, and what emerges from that is a world that's been made ready to give glory to God. And humans will be resurrected like Christ and reign with Christ over this new creation. I think we we just skim past the fact that Jesus' resurrection is bodily. And, and we, we treat that as sort of a proof that Jesus really lived. But we don't really lean into the bodily resurrection as an indication of what's true about us and our, and our future. And that's what I think we need to recover, because the Bible does not describe our future as an airy fairy floating around in the clouds. It says, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, that his bodily resurrection is only the beginning. All of us are going to be bodily resurrected, and we're going to be part of a physical creation. And that then you know, that tells us that, oh, everything from the beginning, you know, the creation in Genesis 1 and 2 is not just a, a placeholder or a temporary, hey, we need a sort of stage on which to do this stuff. So let's slap something together 
And then as soon as the show is underway, we'll get rid of it and go on with real business. <laughs> yeah. the, the stage that God's, God builds for his, for his work in Genesis one and two is a permanent stage. He, he, the physicality of the, of the world and, and our human physicality, our, our embodiment is something that goes with us into the new creation. And if we, if we look closely at Jesus, we can recover that and begin to think about, okay, what does that mean? Uh, that creation still matters, continues to matter even mm. after Jesus' ascension, even after his return, creation still matters. That's so good. Yeah, I, I really love the the whole section on resurrection there and the importance of it. It it really just connects so many dots um, in scripture. Mm. And you also talk about um, one of the kind of, we believe, one of the most neglected um, things in, I guess, evangelical theology, the ascension, mm, you have mm -hmm. like a good part of a chapter on that. And I, I just really loved how you tied that to the image of God. And so I guess, why do you think Matt and I neglected? celebrate Ascension yeah. day just about mm -hmm. more than any other day. We said, mm. we kind of, we can, we're, we always say we're like bringing it back. So every yeah. day we're posting on YouTube, posting, sending yep. films out, you know, people are yeah. like, I've never even heard of this. Heard of what this. are you yes. talking about? You know? Yeah. yeah. So, so why is it neglected and why does it matter? Well, the evangelical church has by and large um, unhitched itself from the church calendar. Yeah. We don't celebrate the, the church calendar and some people watching might not even we know do. what I mean by that, <laughs> right? So, so, so most people will have heard of Advent before the, those are the weeks leading up to Christmas. And of course, you know, about Easter and probably good Friday, but there's a whole lot of other days in the church calendar that have been neglected by churches that have sort of, you know, again, cut their, cut the ties to the historic church and yeah. kind of embrace this cultural moment. And so I have a blog post about this, a kind of yeah, sarcastic one <laughs> in which I uh, suggest that we, you can tell more about what our churches are going to be talking about on Sunday by walking into Walmart or Target and seeing what's on display in the entryway, because that tells us what season it is. And so that's what we're talking about in church than you can from looking at the historic church. And so the Ascension Day is one of those things that hit the cutting floor when we're getting rid of yeah. church holidays. Yeah. And it's so important in this conversation about creation because Jesus, Jesus' resurrected body ascends to heaven to be with the Father. He, he doesn't just live on in our hearts it, it's Jesus isn't alive because I'm thinking about him. Jesus is physically alive and he physically ascended to be with the father and to, to reign over all things. And so um, that's significant because now it means a human is a member of the Trinity, which is kind of mind blowing. If you think about it, like there's an embodied human as a part of the Trinity. And so that says something about our own bodies and how much they matter. And it says something about God's future plans for our, for our world, because if our future was a disembodied, some kind of spirit dimension rather than something physical, then Jesus didn't, doesn't need a body. He didn't need to ascend 
uh, in his own physical body. So I just think we need to think more about that. And I guess it was Patrick Schreiner who first got me onto that. He had a little book on the Ascension that came out several years ago. And he asked me to endorse it. And so I read it. It's it's just a little short book, but he convinced me that, yeah, when we're telling the gospel story, we leave this part out. But his ascension is his taking up his reign at the right hand of the father. Mm -hmm. And that's really significant. Yeah, Yeah, Scott McKnight and other like Matthew Bates and that have talked Mm -hmm. a whole lot about like the gospel is Jesus is king. Yes. And that ties so much into the ascension because, I mean, he's sitting on the throne. Yes. I love, I love their work. Um, Matthew Bates just had a book come out called why the gospel and I haven't read it yet, but he, he quotes me in there and people who are reading my book are reading his book and saying, these go together. They're like the same. Oh, it's so good. I'm reading it right now. Same direction. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's really good. Yeah. So chapter nine, um, I really like that one. You kind of really brilliantly lay out, um, kind of a theology of the church and, um, looking at it equality and even like um rate how race and disability and all of that you deal with the importance of of these issues and how mm-hmm. they're connected to god's image so can you talk maybe a little bit about um kind of the race and disability yeah issues of equality and mutuality there in the church I I didn't set out to write a controversial book. I just wanted to unpack what the Bible said about being God's image, but it struck me very early on that if we get this right, that every human being is the image of God and there's no hierarchy or sliding scale of people who are worth more than others, then that was going to have implications for a lot of the problems in our world. And so I talk about gender and I talk about race and I talk about disability because these are the areas where we other people, where where we put people in other categories and then treat them somehow as less than ourselves. And the the history of the church is littered with examples of um, times when people have dominated other people or exploited them. Um, it's, you know, this is the reason why there's so many people who have said, Hey, I'm done. I'm done with the church. I don't want, I, 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 I like Jesus, but I don't like people who hang out with him. Yep. <laughs> um, people who say they're his followers. And so they've been sort of turned off to the church. And one of the things I'm trying to do in that chapter is to make the case. Uh, and I think more needs to be said, I'm cooking up a third book uh, on this topic but I, I'm trying to make the case that the church still matters too, that that there's something, there are implications for the kind of community, the kind of family we become if we really believe that every human being is God's image. So I try to unpack some of the history of racism and then lean into Paul's letter to the Ephesians, which is dealing with a similar issue of the divide between Jew and Gentile. And for him, the radical thing about the gospel message is that it unites Jew and Gentile into one new family. And that is so radical in his day. He says it's the key to everything, the key to understanding everything. This is the mystery of the ages that's been held until this time and now finally being revealed that we are going to be one family. And so I think it's really important to, to 
reckon with the implications of that for the divisions in our generation, which are not between Jew and Gentile as much as they are between different ethnic groups, between different, um, we could even say socioeconomic classes, that we don't talk a lot about class divide in the West, but man, it exists. <laughs> um, I remember feeling it as a kid because I grew up in a family that uh, encountered some significant financial difficulties. So we were like living in a middle-class neighborhood and I was attending a private school, but my dad lost a couple of businesses in a row. And so the IRS was after us, um, bill payers were calling, uh, the clothes that I wore were all hand-me-downs. We were getting, for a period of time, we were getting food at a food bank. So I'd get food bank food and then I'd go to my private Christian school where I was, we were, my parents were scraping everything they had to keep me in the same school so as not to disrupt my childhood and my education. Um, but I was not, I mean, I, we were not going on ski vacations like my classmates and we were not going to Disneyland. And and the the sort of class difference that you feel then if you go over to somebody else's house and they have 19 cabbage patch dolls and you have one <laughs> you know it just there's this this sense of like i don't belong here or i don't um i don't fit in or even my my mom tried to make ends meet by becoming a cleaning lady so she actually cleaned the houses of some of my classmates which is which felt at the time so humiliating in some yeah. ways and so, yeah, these these uh, divides that we have based on our income or our origin, our citizenship, you know, country of origin or ethnicity, and then uh, disability. I spend quite a bit of time in the book on disability yeah. because I'm convinced that we, most of us operate with a kind of cookie cutter vision in our heads of what a human is. Yep that then excludes people who don't quite measure up to that cookie cutter ideal in, in whatever way, either hearing loss or sight loss or lo loss of mobility, or maybe, um, maybe mental faculties are either like either someone's born with, with a mental disability, or maybe they're experiencing dementia. And so this has implications for abortion, for euthanasia, for, uh, for how we care for people who are, who have lifetime, you know, long disabilities. I, I just think the church hasn't fully reckoned with this yet and yeah. fully put into practice the truth that every human being is the image of God and therefore has equal dignity. Yeah. Yeah. That's so true. And I mean, I, I really appreciated what you write, wrote, but I, I totally agreed with you. In fact, I'm glad that you said it and that I didn't have to say it is that mm. I wanted you to go a lot further than what you went. Like mm. I, I felt like you were on the edge of the diving board and I wanted you to jump <laughs> in, you know, like, yeah. I'm like, just go, go, go. Of course, <laughs> there's not enough pages in the book for it, you know, but yeah. Uh, but I yeah. thought you you really made a great foundation. And if the third book does come out along that lines, I think it, I think it's a great subject. I mean, just from the very basic perception that the church has really gotten this one wrong. I mean, mm -hmm. I would actually say we have covenant theological students come in and almost every of them, every one of them, we try to screen within the first class, like what are the three or four things that we need to sort of break you of? And this is always on the list. It's wow. always one on the list. The pastor, CEO, king, hierarchy of the church, Oh, and everything yeah. filters down from that to exactly what you're talking yeah. about from a day-to-day -day level that we have yeah. 
time and effort for some people that we don't for different types of people yet yeah. before the image of God, it should be, we should be going exactly in the opposite of that direction. And right. it's just, it's a yeah. bad image of the church really. Yeah. And therefore it's a bad image of God to the rest of the people that the church represents. Yeah. I think part of this might be a consequence of the media saturated age that we live yeah. in. Um, I, I came across a study recently about the height of U.S. presidents, and it's been over 100 years since, the, since we've had a president of below average height. Uh, it's like if you're taller, you actually have a statistically better chance of being elected. And, you know, we, we, had, a, we had a president at one time who, who was a wheelchair user. But it's hard to imagine that happening again, because that happened before the advent of television. And so when you can just hear a voice on a radio, it's one thing when you see your president and he uses a wheelchair, do you have a sense of there's something he he can't lead me? Um, And I I think our churches suffer from the same malady because we have televised our services. We're now on YouTube. We have, we have lights, we have fog machines, we have like, it's become a show in, in, in so many ways, instead of being a faithful family of Jesus followers. And so that sort of enamored look at lights and camera has, I think, really detracted from our ability to live into the fact that we're a family. Yeah. Now with that is also going to come kind of the women in ministry conversation. And you don't know Mm -hmm. Matt and I real well, but we're, I I don't use the word egalitarian often because it has mixed, uh, mixed Mm -hmm. feelings, but we're, we're both very much pro women's movement in ministry, equal egalitarian kind of, kind of thinking, looking to, looking to affirm every woman in church leadership. We're also not ones to fall into fivefold thinking. We want to see all the gifts being exercised out there, mm-hmm. and, you know, just a, a beautiful array of everything before the Lord. But I like sort of what you, you know, where you kind of go with that perspective too of women in ministry. Do you want to connect that a little bit? Talk about what you represent. Sure. Yeah. I, <clears throat> I agree with you that the labels are problematic. I don't like the word egalitarian either. Um, because it seems to emphasize equal rights. And I don't think ministry is a right. I think it's a calling, right? And so um, the- And even women in ministry, I struggle with on the same thing because it's like, well, why just women? You know, I mean, I really want equal everything, you know? Right, everybody. It comes back to just, we've got a ministry problem if we have a women in ministry problem, so. Yes, yes. So I begin the conversation in my book about this way back in Genesis with an observation that it's male and female. He created them as the image of God. And so it's not that men are the image of God and then women are an afterthought or they're com- they come along as a su- in a support role, but actually that men and women together are the image of God. And if Genesis says anything about what that means for how we live, it's that we rule you know, right away, it's, he created them as his image so that they may rule over creation. And it doesn't say so that the men can rule and the women can come along and, and just clap. Like, I don't don't know. Um, Men (laughs) and women clean the church, you know, that's exactly what it comes off as. 
men and women equally have a responsibility to rule over creation. And there's no hierarchy as I read it in Genesis one and two, no human is told to rule any other human. It's men and women ruling together over creation. Men are not told to rule over other men. Um, And so part of what the what we see in Genesis three as a consequence of the fall is that there's going to be domination and desire disordered desires and domination are going to characterize gender relations. And so my big question that I'm asking, as I look at this is why has the church for so many centuries leaned into the vision of Genesis three instead of the vision vision of Genesis one and two, which is for partnership and mutuality and so I, I think this works its way out in all sorts of areas, but I think you're right about the problem beginning when we think of ministry as a hierarchy. Yeah. I, I heard a podcast interview the other day with my friend Michael Rhodes being in, uh, interviewed by Drew Johnson. I think it was for the Biblical Mind podcast. Um, Michael has a book coming out in August called Just Discipleship, which is really good. It's about the process of discipleship and what's the role of justice in that? How can we be discipled as people of justice? And he said he was talking about how, you know, if you're a Marxist, then everything is class struggle and everything you see has to do with class struggle. If you are a capitalist, then everything you see, if that's your main lens through which you see everything, then everything is about private property. That's that's what you notice when you read the biblical text is private property. And I think, I think the way we talk about church ministry shows that the lenses we're wearing are all about hierarchy and power yeah. because we're, we're wondering who has the authority to do what. And I struggle to see that as the emphasis anywhere in Paul. You know, Paul is the place where we go to find out what church polity should look like. And Paul isn't talking about authority. He's talking about service. Uh, even in marriage, he's talking about serving one another. And so I think we need to put push the reset button on the whole conversation right. about women in ministry and ask, what does it look like to partner together to do the work that God has called the church to do in the world? And look at the, the list of gifts in Paul's letters. He, he lists all kinds of spiritual gifts. None of them are gendered. N- none of his gift lists are about men. They're about believers, men and yeah, women. Yeah. And so let's go back to what are the gifts God has given and how can we harness these gifts together in ministry? And that's that's what I'm hoping people will be inspired to do. And if they if they're reading this book and they find themselves in a congregation that emphasizes hierarchy between the sexes, there's still so much that can be done within that framework to empower women to fulfill God's call on their life. And I I think that we have had a profound lack of imagination as far as the roles that women can play in the church. I currently attend a church that is complementarian in that it has only men as elders and only men as preachers, but we have women doing all sorts of other things, uh, leading the liturgy, reading scripture, praying a blessing over people who come forward for communion, uh, being part of the prayer team afterwards. Like there are lots of roles that women can play in the, in the congregation, even aside from restricted roles of, of elder and and preacher in my current context. Now, I wouldn't restrict the roles in that same way if I was 
if I was the one who was starting the church, but you got to be is... the king. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm neither king nor queen. I am a follower of Jesus who's been led to this really wonderful community of people who are following Jesus together. And we're trying to figure out how to honor one another in a context where some are deeply persuaded that scripture restricts certain roles for men. And so we're trying to figure out how to live well together in that well, that's very interesting because Matt and I attend the same church that is, I would describe it very similarly to the way that you just described it. Mm, so mm-hmm. We're right there with you. So yeah. we also have what I would say a different eschatological view than most people we know. In fact, I we don't really fit in too many boxes or too many theologies or anything like that. We kind of just say we're, we don't like labels. So we're just going to say, but I, I'd have to say we're a version of a partial preterist. And so our our eschatology goes a little bit different. But with that being said, we've had a lot of conversations that tie into kind of the finish of your book. Matt, why don't you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I really loved it. It, It's one of our mantras kind of on here on Expedition 44 is we always talk about it begins with Eden and ends with Eden or something that looks like Eden. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of the, the the bookends of the Bible. We can what never have a conversation without the word Eden. That's what that's what kids tell <laughs> yeah, us. It's one of the rules. That. In fact, one that's the names of one of Matt's kids, if that tells you anything. Oh, yeah. there we go. My, yeah. my youngest daughter's name is Eden. So, awesome. <laughs> yeah. So uh, you laid out like an amazing eschatology at the, the end of your mm. book. I just loved uh, the the ending chapters of your book. And how you kind of uh, jab a little bit about some modern interpretations of like left behind theology. And I was just sitting there laughing and grinning the entire time. And um, so I just want to know just a little bit, uh, can you speak to like some of those misinterpretations you Mm. believe in eschatology and how it really affects our view of the image of God? The, the part of the book, if, if people make it past my gender roles, arguments without being deeply offended um the part and and the racism uh section in which i make the church complicit in in racism i think the the chapter that i expect to get the most pushback is the is chapter 10 where i talk about the rapture and i've been surprised nobody has um thrown any flaming arrows at me yet (laughs) this this is something that shifted for me i have a very um patchworky denominational history, and I won't go into all the details, but I grew up reformed and then ended up at a dispensational Bible college. And um, so I've kind of been around the block and back. And as far as the years of counseling, have you needed? (laughs) I have, I had, I did see one of my professors uh, at Wheaton college where I did my PhD for some doctrinal counseling on a couple of occasions where I'm like, I'm just trying to sort out who I am and where I fit now, because it's, I feel like the longer I study and the more churches I've, I've been part of from different traditions, it's just harder to, to pick a label that describes me. Uh, And I think you, you expressed that as well. So in terms of the rapture, I, I just assumed the rapture was a thing. And I was in college when the left behind books were all the rage and my parents were reading them. My husband was reading them. Everybody we knew was talking about it or seeing the movies. And, and I just assumed that the Bible taught that there was going to be a rapture. And then I, we moved to North Carolina and started attending a United Methodist church. And we had a really amazing Bible teacher, discipleship pastor who kind of went 
step by step to show that this is actually not a good reading of the biblical text, that some of the popular passages that are used to support the rapture actually don't stand up to a closer reading. And, um, you know, so Matthew 24 is one of those passages where, um, you know, two uh, two men will be in a field, one will be taken and the other left, two women will be grinding with a handmill and one will be taken and the other left. It seems like there's a rapture. But if you read the, the context carefully, it's clear right before this that those who are taken are taken away in judgment because the it's being compared to the flood. In the days of Noah, before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. They knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. So the taking away is taking away in judgment, not taking me up to, you know, beam me up to heaven so that I don't have to experience the rapture. And so um, that's one passage that's often cited in popular literature uh, to support the rapture, and it doesn't seem to. The other one is 1 Thessalonians 4.17. By the way, Carmen, Matt and I kind of have a favorite line that we always just say, you don't ever want to be one that's taken away. That's usually in the whole Bible, not a great context. (laughs) Yeah, totally. There's a few, 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 few and far between, but yeah. Yep. And then 1 Thessalonians where where um, we're, we're being caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, I argue, along with N.T. Wright and lots of others, yeah. that the meeting, the meeting the Lord in the air is not so that he can then take us up to heaven away from the earth, but that we're meeting him like a welcoming committee and ushering him back to earth. And mm-hmm. that's based on some Greco-Roman background of that word usage. Yeah, Anyways, yeah. yeah, so this is the... This is also an interesting correlation there with the Tower of Babel is that they that's sort of what they were trying to do with God is lure him down. And so yes. a little bit of a correlation there. There is. And I do talk about that in the book, although I don't know that I connect the two. Yeah, I have a yeah. section on Babel that, mm-hmm. that talks about it in that way. So, yeah, I think that this has implications for how we think about our future. If we're imagining we're getting out of here, that that results in a different kind of ethic than if we think Jesus is coming to reign as king physically over this restored earth and I'm going to be part of it. That changes how I begin to think about creation care and the yeah. environment, how I think about my body and how I treat it. Um, you know, this is not a shell to be discarded, but like, this is it. <laughs> yeah. This is me from now to into eternity. And so what is that going to mean uh, for, for how I eat or how I um, treat myself in other ways, whether I exercise, whether I take care of my health. So yeah, um, eschatology ends up then working its way out into practice in so many ways. So that's going to feather into discipleship. I guess I'll move over and you can see my background here. CTS, yeah. one of the things that we're really into is um, kind of going back to great commissional thinking. And, uh, mm. and when I look at that, I think one of, we talked about where the church has kind of gotten this wrong. I, I, I believe that, that we're way off course right now, you know, and mm-hmm. part of the emphasis or the majority of the emphasis that Jesus and the first church would have made was to put the in- emphasis in deeper discipleship. And we've, mm. we've sort of lost that. Yeah. I mean, we use this word discipleship in churches, like it's just another program or you know something like that when it 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 was the plan and so you know i i think of the image of god and those two things are tied in Mm. very closely together and i think you did a great job of 
not just necessarily having a singular chap chapter on that, but really the whole book, if you wanted to, and we've actually done this through CTS, is sort of gone through and, and talked about how each chapter actually sort of points to discipleship at the mm. same time too. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that if, if discipleship, some, sometimes the church has treated discipleship like a checklist of moral accomplishments. Like yeah. I haven't done this, 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 and this. So therefore I'm a disciple of Jesus. Right. Or have um, you been or, discipled before? You know, what does that yeah. mean? Yeah. What does that mean? We sat down and we did a little Bible study together. Right. Um, I think that it's so much more powerful to begin with who am I? And then what does that mean for how I'm going to live that out in the world? And so both of my books are, are trying to get at discipleship from that more holistic sense um, yeah. This book, Being God's Image, talks about human identity and vocation. Bearing God's Name talks about the identity and vocation of, of the people of God, specifically the covenant people. They go together, but Being God's Image is starts with that little bit broader view of um, all. every human is the image of God. Yeah. And um, Bearing God's Name is something that's only true of the covenant people. So, um, So the two books work together. There's lots of, I tell lots of stories about my own life or, or friends of mine. And I hope that the stories help to put some flesh on these ideas that it's not just, we're not just trying to like, make sure you have the right theology, but that we're thinking about what does it look like to be faithful to, to who God has made me to be? How can I live into this faithfully? Yeah, that's so good. I'm, I, I just loved uh, everything about the book. Is there anything that we haven't touched on that you maybe you want to talk about before we before we end? Is there any comments you want to make or just tell mm. people where they can keep up with you? Yeah, I mean, I think um, people should know that both of these books are designed for lay people. You do not have to be a scholar to read and appreciate them. I've tried really hard to stay away from technical vocabulary and um, you know, not get lost in the weeds of debates that scholars are just having with other scholars, but to write in such a way that teen, everyone from teens on up can understand it. Um, yeah, you can find me on Facebook and on Twitter. I have a YouTube channel, as you mentioned, Torah Tuesday, where there's a video that comes out every week. Um, I'm working through Exodus on Torah Tuesday, so it doesn't relate directly to being God's image. I'm just working my way through the book because I'm writing a commentary on Exodus. And then I've been on lots of podcasts and uh, lots of articles around the web. So feel free to, to Google my name and find stuff of interest on whatever topics are, are concerning to, to you. I, I have a lot of people ask me about tough texts in the Old Testament. And so I have videos out there on slavery laws in the Hebrew Bible, or what do we do with the weird Zipporah story in Exodus 4 or whatever. So I'm, I'm game for whatever is weird in the Old Testament, helping people engage it and not be put off by it. I just love that. I've really enjoyed Torah Tuesday and uh, mm. yeah. So thank you so much for coming on. We've really enjoyed having this conversation and yeah. how important the uh, image of God is to all of biblical theology and our discipleship as well. It just kind of ties it all together. It's the thread that runs through mm, yeah. from Genesis to Revelation, Eden and yeah. Eden. Yes, exactly. Thank you guys for having me back on. This has been fun. I really enjoyed our last conversation too. Glad we could do this again. Yeah, I yes, think most of you. our uh, watchers, listeners, everything else probably have your first work bearing God's name, why Sinai matters. Um, here's, the, here's the latest one that we've been talking about all day today. 
And I encourage everybody to pick up both of those great reads, stay in touch with everything. And we want to do better of having you on sooner. We don't, we're, hopefully we'll have you on again before you write another book. So uh, <laughs> all right, well, enjoy that. That'd be fun. All right. Cool. All right. God bless you and keep you.